All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Balance of Blues Brothers podcast. Uh, it's Travis Flock today, joined with Ola and RJ. Uh, we have a very special guest uh, today. We have Joe Tweedy with us here, and this is one that we've really looked forward to having you on. Um, if for any listeners out there don't know Joe, um, you know, it, I don't know how you don't. He's on London is Blue podcast, King's Road podcast. You know, he's now joining with Alex Goldberg and having his own mailbag segment on the byline. So, Huge content creator out there, one of the best. Definitely uh, drop him a follow. And Joe, where can uh, where can listeners drop you a follow at? Yeah, so I'm I'm probably only really that prominent on Twitter. So it's at Joe Tweedy. Um, I have a few people try and follow me on Instagram. I don't really use it, and it's really just to follow my friends and family and stuff like that. So Twitter is probably the best place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely give a follow on Twitter, everybody. Um, so. This episode today is going to be pretty interesting. Uh, you know, we'll give you a chance, Joe, to kind of talk about your background within the game um, and sort of your background of being a Chelsea fan, um, how you got there, some of your favorite moments, just kind of general things like that. But uh, one bulk of the conversation was one to have with you today is talking about, you know, how we maybe use data correctly, how it's, in, how it's used incorrectly in sort of an analysis sense for football. Um, and then maybe kind of talking about how we best use an eye test, traditional scouting, and then blending that with data Ola's going to have some questions as well. RJ will have some stuff to follow up on. But that's sort of what we were hoping to get into, sort of an introduction for any listeners out there, what's going to be sort of the main topic covered today. But Joe, uh, just to start off, um, we'll start about, you know, your back in the day, how did you become a Chelsea fan and sort of your path along that and some of your uh, key highlights that you've witnessed and experienced as a fan um, throughout your time supporting Chelsea? Yeah, I've got some uh, some interesting family statistics actually talking about data, which is quite interesting. Um, so I myself, I'm a, I'm a third generation Chelsea fan, so I'm quite deep. Um, I've got third cousins now technically, so I think we go to about five, maybe six generations in terms of my my family on my dad's side. So um, I didn't really have much choice. I think that's probably the easiest way to put it. Um, you know, I I'm reliably informed my my first game was I think late 80s as literally like a you know six month old or whatever it might have been. Um, so again, it's been very much sort of ingrained in me since that age. Um, in terms of in terms of that little statistic, I have um, in my family whenever Chelsea have actually physically won a trophy, one of my family members has always been in the ground, and that's something that we're quite we're quite proud of when it comes to sort of family stats there. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of the the family tradition on, on that side of things. From my perspective, first real memory of Chelsea was um, getting beat 4-0 by Manchester United in the FA Cup final 1994. I'm aging myself a little bit there with that. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, kind of came in, I suppose, at the right time as a Chelsea fan because things since then have gone a little bit better than they were in sort of the, the mid-90s. Um, first real big memory, uh, Roberto Di Matteo scoring after 43 seconds or whatever it was, 1997 FA Cup final. And if things have been quite plain sailing, you know, sort of in, in, in all things considered, um, never really got to witness the, the late 70s and 80s where things were quite dire. Um, yeah, personal highlights. I think the the first Premier League title, I always go back to that as is, is sort of breaking that duck, you know, 50 years to, to win a, a second first division slash Premier League title was was pretty big for me. Um, can't really overlook Munich as well. Um Having uh, having that that sort of day with my with my dad was was something that was really really special. Um, you know, flights out there at God knows what time in the morning, maybe a bit of alcohol during the day, and I stress a bit maybe as a bit of an understatement there. Um, but then to see being that end to feel that that energy and that that moment, um, yeah, that that was that was probably one of the most special things that I've had at Chelsea. Um, and probably since then, I think that the the Porto win was incredible. I think people who you follow me and know me know that I'm a really big advocate of the academy and to see so many of the lads there to, to win that was was amazing and to finish the game with like Reese and, and Andreas and Mason on the pitch you know not many teams can say that almost 30 percent you know of the outfield players that they have have come through the the academy system so that was pretty big for me as well uh Ancelotti's title win another really big one for me just love the fact that we were such a dominant team that season all of the great Chelsea players that I grew up with in my teens and early 20s you know, at the peak of their powers and just, you know, beating team six, seven, eight, nil every, you know, every other week. It was, it was incredible. Um, and then probably I'd say, you know, a, a bit of a weird one, just seeing Frank Lampard manage the club was just surreal, not really making any sort of uh, judgments on his, on his managerial quality or whatever had happened, but to see a player that I had I'd grown up idolizing and watching and going to home and away games and 
somebody who's con- you know contributed more to Chelsea Football Club than the majority of the world's population, seeing him manage the club, bringing through young players. That first season for me was pretty special, in not so much in a, a trophy winning way, but just in sort of uh, let, let's say the, the the kind of the worlds of my my past and my kind of current. So the academy guys and obviously Lampard and that generation meeting. So yeah, pretty pretty in depth in terms of my my Chelsea history. As I said, big big Chelsea family I come from. Um, and I think at the moment as well, the where we are this season under Thomas Tuchel. I mean, we, I mean, he, he's very close to becoming one of my my favourite Chelsea managers by by far as well. So I think as well in terms of the current and the future we have, I'm. Uh, this is probably the most excited I've, I've been in, in a while. I'd say as well, maybe going back to to Conte's first first season in terms of like the ability for us to win trophies and the quality we have and everything like that. So yeah, I think that's. Uh, that's yeah. From from me crying in Wembley to Manchester United, through to me being very happy about us beating Arsenal. So uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, first, it's pretty amazing, you know, to, like to hear the kind of the legacy uh, in, in your fanhood and your family and how that goes on. And it's something that you know I've always admired. You know, being an international fan, I wish. You know, I, I'm still pretty young, so I haven't had my chance to get over there yet. Um, but I am, you know, looking forward to when I finally do. So, but I just as you know, quick note, like to go to, to go to Man- in Munich alone, I think would be a great time. But to do it, you know, going to see Chelsea like you did and what you described, I just feel like that would probably be an experience that is just one that's always going to live in, in in your head. And I mean, it's very cliche and all of that. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's just an, it's just incredible stuff like that. And like you said, sharing it with your with your with your father moving, you know, going traveling over there with him and having that experience, you know, I think that's you know, sort of the, the human side of the game that uh, that's you know, can never be underestimated um, in terms of how it, you know, bridges time, bridges family members, you know, legacies, all of that. It's a it's quite a special bond um, that it can form. So great to hear that. But uh, RJ, it's going to let you, you know, if you have any uh, questions you wanted to ask about, kind of you know the current state of Chelsea or anything like that um, with Joe, you know, I know you've got. A little bit more of a of a memory and catalog than I might have, so I'll open it up to you for for this one. Yeah, I feel like many of the memories, both great and some not so great, fully resonate, and you've unearthed some, Joe. So thanks very much for that, my friend. But I suppose I've been following you for some time now, and I just recently listened to your latest episode with Alex on the byline, which was another cracking one for any of our listeners here. If you haven't already, subscribe to Alex's byline and check out Joe on there. But something that I've picked up throughout your discussions with Alex on occasion as as well and something that I agree with Joe is the club in recent years we've had this we've had this attachment of becoming the club of the revolving managerial door type club but with that has bred short-term success potentially at the trade-off of medium to long-term instability and while our fans often see the fruits of that sudden change of manager via a trophy more often than not. What we don't see is just how costly sheet and just in terms of the dressing room when we change or pivot from manager to manager. And I just think now that we have someone like Thomas Tuchel at the helm and the situation is all rosy as it seems, touch wood, it continues. But just how important is it from your perspective that the club looks to try to give him a bit more time if the roads start to get a bit bumpier? Because as you know, the average life cycle is between 18 to 24 months in the Chelsea manager hot seat. But just wanted to hear from your perspective. Do you think that the club now, seeing the work that Tuchel has done, Will their position or their stance change now knowing what they've got or will the tried and tested results-only model work? It's a really good question, RJ. Um, let me let me use an example which I think is pretty current and I think maybe explains, as you say, some of that kind of long-term planning or, or lack of, of foresight potentially there. So I think probably you guys are aware and, I hope, and listeners probably should be aware um, at the moment that there is a little bit of a centre-back crisis on the horizon for Chelsea coming into next season. <laughs> As things stand, Andreas Christensen hasn't signed a new deal. I think he probably will. Antonio Rudiger hasn't signed a new deal. Aspi is in his last year of his contract and um, Thiago Silva's in the last year of his contract. So realistically at the moment, Trevor Chalaba is kind of, you know, and, and Kurt Zuma, who the club are trying to sell, 
Trevor Chalib is kind of the only person that really has any sort of contract that you can cling on to here. And if you think back to particularly Frank Lampard and his use of a back four, the guys that we're seeing now come to the, the front in the in the, the back three that Tuchel's playing, probably if you know Lampard had been in charge, would have probably been sold this summer. You know, they would have had one year left on their deal. Um, you know, a good time for them to go. Club can still cash in in terms of trying to get a bit of money from them. Um, maybe Rudiger might have played his way back in, but guys like Christensen and, and um, again, even, even Rudiger to some extent possibly were on the chopping block come this summer. So when we look at managerial stability, now Tuchel's come in, different system, different ideas, likes to have a bit more experience and, and a slightly different profile with centre-back choice, obviously we've given the back three. Now you're in a predicament where you have... Antonio Rudiger, who's probably, you know, put in the, the best six months of his entire career. Christensen is, is looking more and more like a completely different player in that middle centre-back role. Um, you know, the, the let's say, the, you know, the kind of the, the rise of, of Trevor Chalibur. Maybe Aspilicueta still looks like he's got plenty of football in him. Thiago Silva may again want to stay here. Um, that lack of, of stability has put us in a position in the transfer market where we may now have to go and spend 60, 70, 80 million euros on Jules Kunde, who, you know, he's a fine player, but you'd question maybe, I know sort of current discussions in terms of midfield versus centre-back, but you'd question whether, if, you know, the club was one with a little bit more long-term um, focus, whether we would be in this contractual situation and whether that Kunde move is as uh, in focus or required as, you know, kind of as it appears to be at the moment. Um, so when we're looking at sort of long-term versus short-term, we're looking at instability versus stability. The fact that we have just made one single managerial change and the, the ideas of the managers are very, I would say they're diametrically opposed, but they are quite different and distinct in how they like to sort of play the game. Um, that one change in the current sort of market could essentially mean that Chelsea maybe don't sign the, the 1A or 1B centre midfielder they want and, and feel that they have to go and get a, a young centre-back, a talented centre-back under contract for a lengthy period of time, which maybe then has a knock-on effect on the squad, how we use players, uh, how we manage players over the course of a season. So these very, as you say, um, I would say they're knee-jerk decisions. I think Chelsea, and I think particularly Bramwich, is very measured when it comes to making the decision to, to sack somebody. I think he generally gets it right as well. Um, but these sort of decisions that we're seeing when it comes to managerial sackings, yes, you know, we get that short-term um, bump and it looks with Tuchel, I think, that he's such an exceptional coach and that hopefully will trans you know, kind of translate across you know, a season, two seasons, three seasons, whatever that might be. But historically, that short-term bump, and then, as Arjo was saying, in 18 months, two years, if you're lucky, you then change to a different manager. You know, you, you go through this entire process again when it comes to squad building. I still think at the moment we have a squad that fits a back four and a back three, almost, I'd say, maybe 50-50 in terms of players. You know, Reese James can play as a wing-back, but for me, he's an excellent right-back. Same with Ben Chilwell playing as a left-back. Um, you know, we've got centre-backs who are great in a three, maybe not great in a two. We've got midfielders who maybe can't play as a lone six, but can play in a pivot um, and sort of vice versa. We've got, we've got, I think, a lot of wingers who are trying, you know, being forced to play as kind of inside forwards. So this this is kind of where we sort of go. And I think we're not seeing as much of the, the friction because Tuchel's such an excellent coach and he can quite clearly sort of get more out of people and actually mould them into more of kind of what he's after. But sort of the traditional thing we've seen at Chelsea is that we almost have this sort of the vestiges of, of previous coaches left in the squad and you know they become senior players who want to play more and then they can become potentially friction within the squad um so it is a little bit chaotic at times i mean yes you know people will look at the trophies and say you know the the, the, the phrase that i coined that chelsea is about chaos and trophies um but this i think now we're trying to maybe see with tuchel that, that there's a longer term plan here um you know he's starting to mold the squad i think into the the kind of, of, of profiles and characteristics and traits that he wants to see. He now appears to have the, the centre forward that he's been after. And I think we can all agree after today's performance, that if that is the baseline uh, or the entry level for Lukaku, then we're going to be in for a pretty good ride this season. But I think to, to sort of round out the, the question here, in terms of when things get bumpy, um, I think Tuchel probably has earned the right to, to, to sort of coach through it. I think sometimes you can see with other managers that particularly I think some senior players historically have down tools and they've never really looked interested and some of sort of the stories that emerge kind of out of training and stuff like that particularly between the transition from 
Lampard to Tuchel was, you know, kind of one day you had a lot of disinterested parties and then the next day everybody was shouting and screaming and, you know, look at me, look at me, which I think probably, again, kind of maybe wound a few players up and maybe maybe that wasn't sort of the, the, the way to go about things. But I think long term, as I say, with with Tuchel hopefully being here for, for longer than the, the typical Chelsea um, length of time, if there are, you know, pockets of, of difficulty, um, you know, it could, could be something that happens this season if we get injuries to any of the three central midfielders that we have. That will be an interesting, you know, period to see how we navigate that. But I think he's earned the right, and I think the club hopefully have learned that the the chopping and changing of of, of managers has much more of a wider impact, particularly on the squad and particularly over the longer term as well. Yeah, great uh, answer, Joe. Just I suppose, and I'm someone that outside of football world work in a corporate environment, and ND the consideration of the commercial effect or the broader organisational impact is something that I'm fully cognizant of. And perhaps sometimes the fan base at times is not first and foremost at front of mind, but connected to that theme about the importance of trying to maintain some managerial stability for that broader squad impact, as you mentioned, Supposedly, I, I feel that connected to this, though, is that the trade-off of placing trust in, in the manager in terms of them wanting to have the players that they want to bring in versus the club itself needing to have its own recognised profile and vision. Yeah. In other words, we've had examples in the past where we the club has not succumbed but they've given the manager what they want and have had a very manager-specific type of player and given the chaos and trophies type of um, <laughs> Chelsea mentality, we've had to unfortunately unwind or divest in that, which has had financial repercussions for the club. So just connected to this one and very quickly, do you feel that the club now has recognised the perils of buying players that are manager-attached and therefore need to have investments that are more manager agnostic and suit the club's broader profile. Yeah, 1000% on that, uh, RJ. Um, my big thing, certainly when it comes to more of the, the corporate structure at a football club, is that a club should have a defined set of ideals and a, a philosophy, and even extending to a playing philosophy, and that a manager should be able to come in and execute it. And one of the interesting points that I think often arises on social media is, you know, oh, you know, Brighton have got great recruitment and Leicester have got great recruitment. Well, that's because they have a, a kind of established philosophy and, and, and style and way of doing things. And then the manager is brought in to execute upon that vision. I think historically, the point you've made there is fantastic. If you think back to, um, you know, the sort of the managerial timeline that we've had from, you know, Di Matteo to to Benitez, we brought in Jason Mourinho, and then it was sort of Richo Sari, and then, you know, Frank Lampard and now Thomas Tuchel. There's not really sort of a connecting theme really amongst them, you know, amongst those managers, apart from the fact that they are football managers in terms of their ideals. Uh, you know, Lampard to, or Sari to Lampard was, was about as, as, as opposite as you can get in terms of managerial ideologies, in terms of how they wanted to, to play the game. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I have often felt that Chelsea should have way more control over the the style and, and, and the type of player that they're looking to to invest in. Um, this isn't to say that it's sort of a one-way conversation, but for me, certainly when you are hiring a manager, that that is part of the discussion for me. You know, we feel that as a club, this is sort of the system we like to play. These are the kind of players that we feel work in the Premier League. This is the sort of style of football we're trying to achieve here. And then it's really up to the, the manager or the head coach or whatever the incumbent title is going to be at that time. It's up to them to be able to execute upon that vision. And of course, they should be able to have input, you know, on the, the players and, and say, you know, present, get presented a list of three, four, five options and say, OK, this is the guy that I think I'd like to I'd like to work with. But to your point, and again, just, you know, sort of summarising this section here over you know the past couple of seasons we've had so many different types of players coming into into Chelsea that suit wing back roles and they maybe can't play fullback and maybe they can't play as a as a holding player but they can play in a pivot and maybe they can't play as a winger but they can play as an inside forward and maybe they are not a lone centre forward this you know these sorts of, of of caveats that we have with so many signings just you know literally but by virtue of the fact of the next manager having different ideas that is I think what we need to stop because we can't be in a position certainly at the moment where we're quite financially dominant. We can't be in a position where we're spending 40, 50, 60 million pounds on players who 
are, I wouldn't say rendered useless, but they're certainly not held in the same esteem by the next coach because he's got completely different ideas. So to your point now, yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of the corporate governance, the governance structure of the club, for me, always should be led by the club and led by the technical directors, the football directors, whoever, whoever that's going to be, very much as a two-way conversation with the head coach, kind of with the, the, the overriding sort of principle that the coach is coming in to execute upon the club's vision. I think that is something that Chelsea have certainly lacked for a while and probably explains a little bit why today the squad still feels a little bit you know, torn between this system that Tuka was playing and maybe sort of more of a traditional back four with a three or two or whatever it's going to be in midfield, et cetera. Yeah, uh, Joe, just to build off of that, I mean, those are some great questions, RJ, and led to something that I want to, you know, ask you a little bit about um, specifically. So, you know, you mentioned how we've gone from Di Matteo to Benitez, you know, to Jose Mourinho, to uh, Conte, and all the way to Sarri, Lampard, and so on and so forth, back to Tuchel. You know, one thing, like, I think you're spot on about that, that, like, there really is not an overarching philosophy between a lot of those managers in terms of how they play the game uh, on average, right? You know, there is some variation. We saw, like, with Lombard, quite a bit of switching around of formations at time. But at the end of the day, right, they are very opposite in, in many ways in how they approach the match, especially Mourinho Tassari is a striking difference. But what I, what I would say is, you know, do you feel almost that the only overarching culture is, is at Chelsea uh, since – basically 2003, maybe even earlier, is essentially just win. And how we do that does not matter. And that's why we can just chop and change and have this issue uh, that, that seems to always come around, um, especially in the fan base when you hear people talk about it, which is that, you know, we, we go from manager A to manager B, and then there's quote unquote dead wood, right, that, that people refer to players as um, simply because they're very specific to that one manager. Like you saw yeah. that with with Jorginho, right, with Sarri, and now he's kind of taken a long, you know, kind of roundabout path to rediscover his form. So do you feel like that's the only overarching culture and and how much of the, the Deadwood issue is really an overall issue from a player standpoint and not just a, a fit or a role within the current manager system? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a very good point there. Um, I mean, I, I largely think that that is the culture that Chelsea have had for, you know, almost coming up to the best part of, of 20 years now. Um, and I think the way that I would look at it is that for me personally, I love the Champions League. I love what it stands for. I love boasting about winning the Champions League. But the best team for me is always domestically over 38 games. Are you the best team um, in your country? It's, it's the consistency of performance. I think Chelsea have, even going into sort of the 90s, you know, we've always been a fantastic cup team, a knockout team. I think that is part of the club's DNA. Um, I certainly felt in, in the Champions League under Tuchel last season that, I just had so much confidence going into games because I knew how we were set up. I knew that we could play on the counter. I knew that we were defensively incredible. Um, and I think probably, you know, over the past four seasons where we finished, I think, you know, 30 points or 33 points, 27, whatever it is, you know, the furthest away that we've really finished uh, from, from a, a title winner in, in incredibly long time. And I think I even remember doing some research on this and even that season where we finished 10th, the points delta between us and the champions was actually less than some of what we've seen recently when we finished fourth. So if you're looking at, you know, comparatively, even that season where we're absolutely dreadful, nobody wants to talk about, we were still closer than what we've been to winning the title in the past couple of seasons as well. So I think that knock on effect of having that culture of just winning, let's win, let's, you know, when you, when that stops happening and you don't have anything to fall back upon, then, then I think that's when you start jumping into sort of the, the panic stations where jumping between managers um, maybe some some panic buyers, maybe trying to overinvest in areas, maybe not looking at at a you know even at a long term picture at Chelsea of let's say three years for example. It's not long term for most people, but for as a football club, trying to get some semblance of of how do we get back to competing for for Premier League titles in a one off you know in one off games we can beat the Cities and Liverpools and Uniteds and whoever it may be, but probably going back to Conte second season we've struggled massively to beat teams who put ten men behind the ball. And as basic a concept as that is, that, that has been the same for every single manager, um, you know, over the past couple of years. So I think sort of tying this, this all together here is that, yes, you know, the, the win, win at all costs philosophy, it's fantastic, you know, great, it, it delivers trophies. I don't think that many people can argue with Chelsea's club model. The question that arises for me that if we were, if we were slightly better managed in terms of planning and in terms of having maybe more control over our philosophy, how much more would we have won over a period of time? Because maybe chaos and trophies, maybe that is the club's philosophy, that is how they do things, and that is how they get the best out of the squad, you know, shocking them with new managers, new ideas, keeping things fresh, etc. Um, but there is a part of me that wonders, certainly when it comes to recruitment and squad planning and, and having an overall kind of playing style that is 
um, you know, something that, that you can get managers to enact rather than them coming in and being the philosophy. I've, I'm questioning certainly over maybe the past four or five years, um, you know, whether that would have, have actually helped us out a bit more. I do personally think that having a bit more structure in place helps. Um, whether it's to say the, the Chelsea way is, is just something that kind of sort of subverts logic in many ways. Um, but I would, you know, kind of suggest or would, would hope that in the future that maybe having someone like Petr Cech there can be a bit more of a pun check and balance, you know, in terms of, of how he sort of is able to, to link the, the playing style and the playing world and then obviously the, the corporate side of it as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping that Tuka will get that back in, will get that structure. And, and, and again, I'm thinking, you know, the signing of Lukaku to me suggests there's been an absolute ton of planning behind that. It fits what Tuka wants. It fits the, the profile of, of, of what I think a, a good Chelsea centre forward is. It's a it's a Drogba, it's a Costa, it's a Lukaku. We, we do well with that type of profile of centre forward. So it seems to me that there is some there is some intelligent rationale behind trying to go for him in terms of the the, the finished article to lead this young group of players. And I, I'm just hoping that when we look at recruitment in the next one, two, three seasons, whatever that might be, that we can try and actually connect some of those dots and see those pieces and, and actually get some of the logic behind it. Because again, I don't think over the past couple of seasons, some of the signings just haven't really made sense. And as much as none of us here know anything, in, you know, in terms of the level of, of what a professional club does, I think sometimes people overcomplicate that. And if you can look at a, a situation and say, well, sim on a simple sort of understanding, it doesn't feel that, you know, it doesn't feel like a great signing, kind of questioning the, the logic behind it. You know, football is, is a simple game. It can be overcomplicated by people at times. So there is that element as well. So as you say, yeah, long term, I'm hoping that that, that structure is in place and will help Tuchel. But I, I can't help but think certainly, as you say, the, the win at all cost philosophy has possibly led to the situation where we've not been as competitive domestically because of the recruitment, because of the jumping from different managers, etc. No, yeah, very well said. Um, and I, I think that you, know, you very much hit a, a great point that you know the, the, the constant chop and change managers even bleeds into the transfer policy. And, you know, you've seen some of these overcorrections at times where money is thrown at areas that it seems like we're just throwing it here to plug a gap, to, to maybe appease a manager the best that we can. In the meantime, it, it's just a very, and I, I really got, kind of go back to the end of the Conte era when, when that was really starting to rear its head quite uh, poorly, um, I think is sort of a, the culmination of that moment. And we kind of really struggled for years. Uh, you know, we yep. went from Conte to Sari, which was, very opposite way of playing and you know you have to shift Alonzo into a, into a left back and not a left wing back and it's just things like that that you know they, they make a big difference and that's a, it's so important that, that that overarching you know kind of club culture philosophy uh is such a hard thing to nail down but if you can nail it down someone like Barcelona did in the in the you know mid to late 2000s they had everybody buy in in the same way and from the top down all the way to the bottom and that's a really challenging thing to do, but when done correctly, you know, the results typically tend to be a little more, not only over the long-term successful, but also more stable within that a kind of long-term viewpoint. So, you know, I think those are great points. And, and it's something about the Chelsea fan base that, you know, it's something that you always hear this argument of, of with manager talk. There's always this argument uh, of managers, even with Lampard, right? There was a, a very faction, you know, sort of approach that started happening towards the end of it. And I think maybe that's born out of this idea from fans, right? When things go poorly, we've become not only so accustomed to winning, but almost spoiled by it by, in some ways from some fans. Um, and, and I think that that kind of goes into, you know, we say we want to give people time, but then when we, whenever the results don't go that way, right, it, it's just very knee jerk. And it's a, uh, well, we said we're going to do one thing, but at the end of the day, we're going to revert to form, which is we're going to win. And if that person's not achieving that objective, we can bring somebody else in, even if they have a very different philosophy, and we can still produce results one way or the other. Um, it's worked, but I agree with you. I think that eventually there is going to be a short-termism to that approach, and eventually that there's, the well is going to kind of, you know, so to speak, it's going to go dry at some point from yeah. that. Um, without a question, it will, I think. And, and we're, we're going to have more periods of, you know, Conte season two all the way back until Tuchel there's going to be those sort of valleys where we're a top four team struggling to make that every year um and, and I don't know I mean it's no fault to Roman Abramovich but it is kind of the current state of things just to transition um into the next uh, kind of topic that you know we're going to get into which was player identification and sort of scouting and your background within that 
Um, I think that's kind of a good stop, a good kind of transition point to go, you know, talking about how the club looks at transfers and get some things right. And, you know, kind of asking you about your background um, for that. Okay, Joe, um, you, I know you are, you are a scout and I did start a scouting series some months ago and I didn't have a lot of, of video to use. So I, I, most of what I used was, was, was stats and data. <laughs> and I, I tried to use as, as much context. I, I tried to give as much context to each data point that I, I use because I know that, you know, some stats at, at face value can look, you know, a certain way. But when you look at it in depth, you realize that it doesn't actually say as much as you think. And, you know, we know that stats can be misleading. So I wanted to ask that is there, is there any particular stat that, that can be particularly you know, be misleading because, you know, something like um, defensive actions, for instance, where you know that defensive actions are not as straightforward as they seem because if a player plays for a more defensive team, he likely will have more defending mm -hmm. to do. So we, we know that defensive actions are not, not as they are and they have to be looked at more closely. So are there any other, any other statistical any other, any other stats or any other data that we need to look look at more closely when we are when we are doing these kinds of things? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. Um, I think it, it's quite position dependent. I think you you make a good point there. Certainly, when it comes to defensive metrics, you know, if you are playing in a a team that is basically getting hammered every single time they play, then you're expecting them to have more clearances, more interceptions, all that sort of stuff. I think using or trying to use possession adjusted stats has some relevance. You are trying to sort of adjust to a kind of statistical norm there and trying to get a, a slightly better perception um, of, of a player. But there's also that kind of effect where you can maybe sort of overcompensate for certain players. You know, if somebody has um, an insane amount of interceptions and you possession adjust and then it sort of jumps off the page at you, you know, 12, 15 a game, we, we know that those sorts of things aren't realistic. So... I think from, from my perspective, when it comes to the, the sort of the stats on the things, the context, I think, as you say, there is key. And I think that is maybe where the, the I don't want to call it the basic sort of statistical analysis that you see on Twitter, but where you have the rise of people like, you know, like who scored and Squawker and SofaScore and, you know, all of these, these sort of companies. I think sometimes at the end of the game, people are waiting for that value, you know, 7.8, 7.0, whatever it's going to be. Uh, to sort of inform their opinion on what they're watching, maybe rather than looking at the game and then using the data to maybe either support or maybe disprove some of the sort of the assertions or the the ideas that they've come up during the game. Um, I am, I think probably when it comes to sort of basic stats, I think there are a couple that, that jump out to me that are quite sort of, uh, I would say, not particularly useful, but are very prominent. So you look at sort of assists, that's probably the... The absolute main one for me, assists as a measurement of creativity is probably the, you know, for me, the, the weirdest conversation. We see it all the time now. You know, we may some out, we even get into whether he's made an assist from a corner kick or whether he's played a, a quote-unquote open play assist, for example. It seems to be a really big discussion point for a certain portion of, of the fan base. Now, the, the extreme example that I use with people is, let's say we have Andreas Christensen over the course of the season hits absolute long ball to nobody, massive, massive hoof. I'm thinking Cesc Fabregas to Costa against West Brom, where he just punted it down the line. Costa beats, you know, beats the guy and sticks it in the top corner. You know, Cesc gets an assist. If Christensen does that 10 times to Lukaku this season, gets 10 assists, but Mason Mount, you know, maybe he creates, I don't know, 120 shots or whatever that might be. Again, we're taking the extreme end of the argument here. There are people that genuinely seem to believe that Andreas Christensen is therefore a more creative player because he has more assists. When you're watching the game, you and I both know that he has just literally put his foot through the ball and Lukaku has maybe done something insane and incredible. Um, but after the fact, you know, two, three, four months down the line, that assist that we all know the context around, um, that just becomes a number. And then that, that then we get into the argument of this number is bigger than this number and therefore this player is this and this player is that. So I think assists from, from that perspective is, is probably one that is, is one that I least like. And I think in that respect, when we're looking at creativity, I think F FB Ref is probably my favorite source for, for stats that are at least sort of openly available. Um, and they have a, a statistic, I think it's shot creating actions, which to me, it's kind of more of a true measurement of somebody 
who is is at least generating shots from from players. It's not chances created or whatever. It's actual meaningful actions that have led to a shot on target. You then, if you really want to go a bit nerdy and take that further, you can then say, well, you know, it doesn't have uh, a value for the quality of those shots. There's no XG value or expected assist value attached to those particular instances either. But as a as a general metric of creativity, and I think that's probably where football for me at, at the moment is sort of on this precipice of having some very good generally descriptive statistics now available publicly versus maybe that logical step where you're combining maybe a an ex- you know, expected assist value or an expected goal value onto a shot creating action. And that would really give you a really, really high quality measurement of creativity. But it's, I think, as you say, this, this simple application of some stats that people take to be gospel. And then when you actually look at the context of the game, that's where they fall apart as well. And I think the other one as well that I find interesting, um, and it's, it's one of these I think people try to, to use in the context of somebody being a particularly progressive passer, I think it's passes into the final third is one of these statistics here. Again, you know, somebody sees a massive value and go, oh, you know, this, this guy must be playing all these incredible passes. You know, you and I could be on a football pitch. You could be standing two metres away from me. And because I've passed the ball to you across this, you know, this threshold, I get credited with a pass into the final third. That has achieved absolutely nothing. It hasn't moved players around. It hasn't added any, anything to the game. But if I've made, let's say I've made five of these over the course of a game, again, as they build up over the course of a season, people then take this sort of natural conclusion that this person is like, a, you know, Andrea Perla in his prime, he's pinging balls into the final third, he's this incredible passer. So I think, again, it, it's all around the context. And for me, that, that is why I think certainly the, the, the data analysis, the, the way that some of these things are sort of positioned, particularly on social media, they don't necessarily always account for the true value of the, of the actual metric itself. There's no one metric that for me is, is incredible and trumps all others or is, is better than, than any. I do think a little bit that sometimes people take these, uh, you know, these kind of squawker breakdowns after a game or, you know, a monthly composition of stats from people. And, and as I say, you know, these passes into the final third or, or progressive carries, you know, I could dribble from the left-hand side of the pitch, you know, 10 metres up the pitch to the right-hand side of the pitch and have carried the ball, you know, 50 metres or whatever, um, you know, and, and how that necessarily adds to the game. You know, I, again, I could have I could have kicked the ball and it would have been the same effect. Um so I just think there's a little bit of a disconnect between the way that people interpret the, the data, the way that people interpret stats, um, the, the conclusions that they take from them. And I think, again, that sort of that disconnect between the way that I think football is, is consumed. Now, it's all about statistics. Everything is about data. Everything is about, you know, this number is bigger than this number. And I think in that respect, some people have lost the, the, the context and maybe the, the sort of visual part of the game. As I say, you know, you, you can look at a game and you can tell that a player has had a good game just by... The, the virtue of, of actually what you're seeing and actually the context of, of the of the pictures that you're seeing rather than reducing football to a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet after the game and just looking at numbers and suggesting that somebody has, has played well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could go into tons of these here, but th- th- I think the assist one and some of, some of the passing uh, metrics that I see, those are probably the ones where I'm a bit curious in terms of how people interpret them, how they are used to pr- produce or, or push for particular narratives around certain players. And I think, again, that is where I, I get sometimes get the disconnect between a sofa score score of 7.5 or whatever it might be for a player and what I've actually sort of seen during the game today. So it's, it's interesting in terms of how, how that sort of, um, you could say like the perception of football has changed and it has become more about the statistics and the stats, passing percentages, all this sort of stuff that people really care about. But realistically, during the game, um, I, I just think that there's, there's too much of a disconnect for me. And I think that is probably where I'll, I'll end it on, on some of those stats. Yeah, I think you, you make a, a lot of good points because I've always also thought that assists are, are more circumstantial than intentional. I mean, yeah, if, you, if you play, if you play with, with Frank Lampard, you, you pass the ball to him on the edge of the box, he shoots his cause, you get an assist, but you didn't really create the chance. And, you know, I've also thought that even, even the stats, chances created, has always been misleading because... A short assist, a lot of times, is not is not a substantial chance that a player is expected to score. Like yeah. a, a shot can a shot can be taken from anywhere, and and the, the interesting part of of, of those stats is a a, a a chance created, a big chance created, all hinges on the on the person you pass to scoring. So yeah. if it, I, I mean shooting rather, and if they don't shoot, 
there's no chance created. If they don't shoot, yep. no big chance is created. So many of many of, of these assists are, are tied to other players. And I've always felt that, you know, I when I'm when I'm thinking of creativity, I look at I look at a lot of things. Yes, key passes are a part of them, chances created are part of them. I look at big chances, I look at expected assists. I I look at a, a number of things because I know that just looking at assists can be really throw it, it can throw you off and it can throw other people off too because you'll be looking at what you shouldn't be looking at and you'll be you'll be checking what you shouldn't check. So thank you for for those um, for those points. Those were those were very good points. Something to follow up there, which I think is is really interesting. And you're one of the only people that I've spoken to that actually picks this out. For a, a, a let's say for a data point to be registered, so like a, as you say, a chance and an assist or whatever that might be, the person receiving the ball has to actually shoot. They actually have to do yeah. something. And you know, certainly there there are times last season where a player would play in somebody, and you're thinking, okay, they you know they've created a chance there, but you know, so and so is it's probably back or got tackled or whatever. But that sort of negative space, if you will, that is not something that necessarily get registered. I just, I mean, again, in terms of your point about the assists, you know, the the way that I always frame it, and just a, a small story here, I, I think when Gareth Bale was at, at Tottenham a couple of years ago before he moved to Madrid, he had this game against West Ham where I think he scored like two goals from about 35, 40 yards out, which were just, they were just absolute monsters. And I remember reading the next day that what I, the, I think it might have been Harry Winks or, or, or whoever, the Harry Winks equivalent of the time, literally passed him the ball about 30 centimetres and he got registered two assists from Gareth Bale dribbling forward and actually smashing the ball into the top corner from, from like 35, 40 yards. And that was kind of the point where I was like, you know, assist, an assist should be meaningful, you know, like, uh, you know, Mason's pass to Reese today. That was, that was how the goal was scored. Cover to, to Chalaba, for example, against Palace. You know, it's a lovely pass, but Chalaba still has scored from like, you know, 30 yards out with a ridiculous shot, taking a couple of touches. You know how how you know how much of a status, but the, the Gareth Bale and that that was always the one to me because I remember seeing the uh, the graphics on I can't remember what the app was at the time might have been the four four two app the line you couldn't you couldn't even see the line it was barely registerable you know the system winks it was like a dot and then you know Bale has smashed it in from however far out so yeah it's always interesting in terms of, of, of how those things are registered and in terms of as you say how fans use them to then fuel arguments and have these massive discussions later in the season. There are probably better metrics to that. Oh yeah, I, I just wanted to to finish up what I was what I was thinking. That I generally prefer big chances created because it shows I, I I pay attention to chances created when they are of a certain number. I generally prefer big chances created because it has more intent and it's 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 the kind of chance that you can you can actually expect a player to score. So when you create big chances and and they are missed, then you can say okay. You created this opportunity. You put this player in, in a certain situation, and I just I just wanted to hear your thoughts on you know on some stats that when when we look at them, we shouldn't just look at it and just roll with it. Even progressive passes. I mean, a player that plays on a team that has more possession will make more passes yeah. and will make more progressive passes. So those things are, are one of the things I try to look out for when I'm when I'm writing my scouting report so that I don't. I don't fall fall into the trap that I am telling other people to avoid falling into. So yeah, passing passing for me is a is a big one. It's a really, really big one here, and I think this again is one of the the most misleading stats out there when it comes to sort of the available information, whether that is you know passing uh, percentages, whether they actually say um, you know progressive passing, etc. I I try to almost look at passing from a almost an exclusively technical perspective. And that would be around sort of passing detail. So, um, you know, the weight of the pass, the direction of the pass, you know, can the, the player uh, who's receiving the ball, are they receiving it to the correct foot? Are they receiving it in a, a position that allows them to play one touch, two touch, um, rather than, you know, making, I think a lot of people make um, definitive conclusions about passing percentage, meaning that somebody is a good passer. Um, I, you know, for me, when I look at sort of those kind of stats, I, I, I wouldn't say that I ignore some of the passing stats, whether it's progressive, whether it's, you know, any sort of metrics that are, that are available. But the, the technical detail for me is the thing that I always primarily look at. And, and I said, when it comes to um, ball striking velocity, all those sorts of things that I much rather see somebody 
who can punch the ball between two players into somebody like Lukaku's feet or who can switch the play without floating the ball or who, you know, if they're really simple stuff, passing the ball out to wing back, are they playing it in front of them so they can run onto the ball or are they hitting it to their feet, you know, where they're static so they have to take two, three touches to build momentum. These sort of really kind of minute sort of details when it comes to passing and things like that, it's, it, those are the things that I tend to to focus on. So when we're looking at sort of the world of data and the world of video, uh, sort of video scouting or scouting in person, for me, when it comes to passing, and again, this is even sort of creative metrics as well, somebody's ability to disguise a pass in the final third, their vision, their ability to, to not only spot the pass, but execute what can be, um, you know, passes in incredibly condensed areas. These are sort of the things that I'm looking at. And it's, again, this is more of like an eye test or uh, a subjective sort of way of, of, of looking at the game. But I get more value from seeing that than seeing, as you say, somebody has made uh, I don't know, 50, 50 progressive passes or whatever whatever metric is going to be. They've got a percentage of this. Um, I'm much more concerned about the, the passing detail, the quality of the pass in those instances. And I think, again, if people were to look at passing in that respect, then maybe they would appreciate uh, or maybe pick up some, some slightly more nuanced points. The one to the fullback is always the one that irritates me the most about um, anybody who's playing in a pivot or a holding midfield spot. You have a, a fullback or wingback who is quite clearly running into space and yet they just fire the ball to their feet. And it, it, you know, that one or two second adjustment allows the opposition to get 10, you know, five, 10 yards further into position rather than giving them that ability to consistently run onto the ball and play one and two touch. And uh, bringing it sort of back to Chelsea, John Obi Mikel was absolutely fantastic at this. He was so underrated. And I think he was one of the players that people didn't particularly like at the time. But his, his weight and his, his angles and the, the accuracy and the, the areas that he would pass into. There's a goal, I think, that Chelsea scored against Arsenal where he, he clips the ball with backspin perfectly. So it just sits in front of Ashley Cole where he puts a cross in and Chelsea score. And it's such a, a ridiculously insane pass. And, and nobody really noticed it because, it, you know, Mikel just does what he does. He's, you know, just spreading the ball around. But the, the backspin, the, the elevation, the little, the little clip, all of that sort of stuff, that is what I, I look for when I look at sort of passes and how they, how they control and dictate the game. It's the quality, the technical quality of the passer rather than the, the data behind it. As you can tell, I'm a bit of a passing nerd, so <laughs> that was my thesis. So just to kind of follow up on that, because unlike Ola and Travis, I don't really believe in stats in the same way. Um, <laughs> I, I like the phrase lies, damn lies, and statistics. Um, so the opposite of that is usually the eye test. So what kind of things are you really looking for with the eye test? And you know, are you making adjustments to that, you know, like for in Tammy Abraham's case when he's playing for Swansea in the Premier League versus the championship with Austin Villa? And, um, yeah, just are, are you finding that you're watching a player before you look at their stats or vice versa or kind of doing it hand in hand? Yeah, yeah. Um... If, if I am given, let's say somebody gives me a, a mandate to look through a certain profile of player, I might perform like a massive piece of data analysis that gives me a sort of benchmark list of people to look at. For the most part, I watch enough European football that I probably have a good idea of people that I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in, but it, it will sort of slightly depend on the mandate there. And again, from your perspective, um, I... I prefer to, to look at a player and make conclusions on matches that I watch and then bring the data in to either disprove that. Again, you know, we all have biases. We all see things in certain ways. We all have things that we like in players. So if I am saying, you know, I think somebody um, is, you know, particularly creative, I might look at some, some creative stats over the past couple of games just to make sure that it's not something that I am, you know, sort of completely fabricating. So I do tend to look at uh, players from a from a technical standpoint, from a physical standpoint, um, first before really digging into, into sort of the data side of things. And I think one of the more interesting points here is that I remember watching Naby Keita a lot before he moved to, to Liverpool. Um, I always thought that he was a good player. I have a little bit of thing about how certain players transition from, from uh, Germany, Austria, et cetera, to, to the Premier League. Um, but he was considered a slam dunk by prominent people in the analytics community. And I, I don't think really that that has, that has panned out. And that, that is the one player that I kind of keep in the back of my head when I start looking into, could be midfielders, defenders, whoever that's going to be, as the, you know, he had 
all of the analytics metrics, he was the darling of the analytics world. You can go back and look at Statsform and, and other sites. This isn't digging anyone out. It's just sort of making a, a point about some of the way that they were they were looking at him. And yet, you know, this this is kind of how Liverpool, who are a very data-driven club, uh, spent 50 million, I think they spent 50 million pounds on him at the time, which was an awful lot of money for a player um, coming from that sort of Red Bull system. So he is kind of the, the point that I keep in mind to not necessarily always follow the analytics and to maybe look into the, the video to actually look at the, the player myself. When it comes to differences in, in certain leagues, I think, again, this comes to a little bit of having an inherent knowledge of what that league is good for and what it necessarily isn't great for, and also the context of some of the teams that you're playing on. Now, Tammy at Swansea, was I think, was doomed to fail, similar maybe with Josh McEachran going there even before Tammy. Um, the way they played, the way they used forwards, just didn't seem a particularly good fit for, for Abraham. Um, I think at that point in his career, probably more of just a, a pure finisher. And I think certainly at Swansea, they they were quite a low volume team when it came to sort of chance creation and and, and just the, the general side of play was just not something conducive to a, a young academy sort of graduate coming into a, a first team. Then you sort of sort of juxtapose that with, um, I think it's Bristol City and Aston Villa. And you could see in, it's all sort of comparative, but in comparatively slightly better teams, teams you have maybe more of an idea of how to use him that's when you can start to see some of the, the traits that you're looking for. Um, I often think that a lot of Chelsea centre-forwards, because we play in such a, a dominant team for the most part, these, you know, these kids have, have been used to essentially just finishing off chances. I think that certainly Chelsea centre-forwards, they lack some of that kind of nuances or, or let's say um, parts of the game that will make them more well-rounded, being able to drop deep, being able to play back to goal, being able to link play being able to, to run the chance, being able to counter press from the front. Quite you know, more often than not, you look at uh, going back to guys like Dom Solanke, they're literally there to get on the end of chances that they have you know, from their world-class you know, under-18 teammates that put on a plate for them every single game. So I think sometimes from, from that perspective, that when I was looking at Tammy, what I wanted to see was I knew that he was a good finisher, I knew that he would score goals. But I wanted to start to see that development in his, in his game. So I think to your, your point here, uh, Trav, it's... It's very contextual in terms of the players that you're looking at. I think it's very individualistic as well. I try to keep that perspective when I'm looking at players or looking for players. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of, lot of uh, note-taking on Levi Colwell at the moment. So how, how he's reacting to being, uh, you know, basically a glorified uh, Andrea Perlo as a centre-back for Chelsea's academy versus now having to do some real proper defending, having to defend against, you know, six-foot-three blokes in the championship how he's sort of being able to, to deal with that side of the game as well. Um, so it, it's all kind of part of the, the process, I think, is knowing either if you're looking for players, knowing the mandate, knowing what sort of people have asked you to, to look for. But if it's sort of looking at trying to evaluate some of Chelsea's um, academy prospects where they've been on loan, the context around it, the club they're at, um, their own skill set as well. I think it's a very, you have to have a good innate knowledge of the player. Um, and then you're able to sort of start to see where they could be developing. So, you know, for example, some some anecdotal stuff from around Chelsea's academy, people that I speak to, you know, they're they're even a tiny bit surprised with how well Colwell has adapted to the championship. The fact that he's 18, he's commanding a first team place. He's one of their best players. You know, he's getting a lot of the, the, the media stuff from the club. He seems to have really hit the ground running. And that has even surprised people within Chelsea's own academy. So gives you sort of a, a tiny bit of insight into you know, their expectations was that maybe by January he'd be a first team regular and he'd have adapted to the league. And yet where two, three, four games into his season, you know, he's winning man of the match awards, he's scoring, you know, winning goals in the 94th minute. He's, he's having his name sung by travelling away fans. I mean, it's a little bit ahead of the curve for where he wants to be. Um, but again, it, it maybe speaks to his talent. So, yeah, hopefully said some 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 detail in there. But I think for me, this the, the benefit of having a slightly more personal approach to, to scouting in general is that I think you can get the context, you can get the nuances, you can get the feel for the player more rather than making it sort of a, an abstract exercise in Python or, or Excel or whatever your choice of, of coding language is, which sometimes for me, I think it reduces the... The, the impact that your scouting can have. You know, we all know, certainly understand the term game state. So, you know, if you're 2-0 if you're down, your approach to possession, how you, how you are on the ball, how you choose the pass changes from when you're 2-0 up, for example. And I think sometimes, certainly when it comes to data and, and analytics, that sort of game state is something that is, is often, I think, overlooked, how pressure changes, how it affects players. You can't necessarily quantify that in a, you know, a passing model or an expected goals model or whatever it's going to be. So I try to 
try to sort of fat all of that into a very kind of subjective inner equation that I have in my head when I'm looking at players. Um, but it probably explains a little bit why I, I lean to that side of the scouting more and then try to find the, the statistics to either, you know, prove or, or disprove or back up or to round out the, the process of, of evaluating players. Yeah, I, I mean, just to pick up a little bit here, Joe, I think, you know, you bring up a lot of good in, information in terms of this background between data and, and traditional scouting. Um, in terms of blending the two approaches, right, you know, you've kind of talked about how there are some models that are not going to be useful for some things. There is this kind of myopic reduction of, you know, looking at, you know, very subjective terms like creativity and then going to just one stat, which is usually assist to make that entire argument for <laughs> player X being better than player Y. So, you know, so is there any thing that you do other, you know, you kind of mentioned how, like, when you start, if you're given like, you know, a, an objective by the club, you know, look for this kind of player profile that you'll turn to the data, then kind of get a, a better idea of who to kind of refine your search for, then look, you know, kind of watch the players. So like, what are some of the big things that you find maybe even after you've used data to sort of identify players and you kind of use the eye test? Are there ever instances where you go back to data after sort of looking at the eye test um, to kind of maybe look at differences that you can't pick up on as much with the eye test? And I guess another follow-up from that is, how much do you consider, right? We talked about the systems itself and how a, you know, kind of how a player might be playing based on that system, whether they're on the ball a lot with a, with a winning score or off the ball a lot with a losing score. How much do you consider the actual role that each player is playing in that respective system when analyzing or looking at statistics? I think the, the way that I would say in terms of the, the statistical side of things, I think they are particularly useful when you're looking at evaluating young players. If you have a great data set for, let's say, like under 23s, I would say for the most part, if you watch football, anyone sort of 24 plus 25, if they're a good player, you probably know of them. You know, you probably know that they're good. You kind of know what they're, what they're sort of useful for. I think when, when I'm sort of tasked with looking for younger players, and this could go right down to 18s, for example, the I think that the use of statistics to produce outliers so players who are quite clearly you know that they're, they're super creative or they're amazing defensively or they just they look to be you know a standard deviation or so away from sort of the general mean of, of, of the data uh, or you sort of the, you know the kind of average players that you're looking at those outliers to me I think they're always things that I, I would always explore in terms of trying to get a video on trying to analyze further so I think when you have an enormous set of data on a lot of young players using um Again, these, these could be very, very simple filters or very, very simple, um, you know, kind of benchmarks that you have personally for, for certain things or whatever that might be. Having that ability to apply those, um, you know, those kind of data standards to, to a, a huge, enormous set of data, whether, you know, you've got a, a Scout database or whatever that's going to be. I think that is a, a really interesting way to, to start building a portfolio of players that you're interested in, in following further. And to put it into to context, um, you know, uh, someone like Aurelian Shuameni, for example, was somebody that I kind of started taking note of maybe maybe two seasons ago when he's at Bordeaux because some of his passing statistics for a player playing in France of his age uh, were, were significantly better than at least what I would anticipate at that point in time. And this was when Shuameni was probably more of a deep line playmaker than sort of the player he is today. So things like that, I think, could give you sort of an interesting perspective uh, on players who I think have clearly uh, more of a, a well-rounded or more developed set of, of traits than, than others. Um, and again, I think the, the point about taking it to um, the, the context of the system that they play in, that probably has become more of a prominent part of how I actually view players in, in, in today. And I'd say maybe something I've been doing over maybe the past two, three seasons in particular is to look at the differences of players. Um, so, for example, we'll stick with Shuameni because he's a name that's here. You know, this is a guy that has had an awful lot of success playing as a lone number six, but the way that he plays as a lone number six would be different to how necessary Chelsea might use him, for example, um, or a traditional, let's say, a traditional Premier League winning holding player, a Fernandinho, a Fabinho, a Makaleli, a Matic, these kind of guys who are very much more of a sort of traditional anchor man in terms of that position and giving the ball to your Silvers and your De Bruyne's and, and et cetera. Um, so looking necessarily at the, the profile of the player, um, how they play the role is a big thing for me, the systems that they've played in, the style of football, even, even going to the point that I have notes on style of play for leagues, I have style of play for teams and coaches and managers. Again, you know, just because somebody plays a 4-3-3, you look at Frank Lampard, you look at Maurizio Stari, you know, they are played in completely different manners in terms of how you execute them. Mourinho plays it differently. 
just by the fact that somebody plays as a right central midfielder in one system doesn't mean that they necessarily translate to another. You know, the wing-back, full-back dynamic is something else that I'm very mindful of. Um, you know, and, and then you, you kind of sort of try and I, I almost sort of, it's a bit weird to say, but, but form some sort of like kind of mental models or rules around certain players. You know, I'm always a little bit uh, mindful of, of wing-backs who are very successful in Serie A, for example. You know, the, you have that Atalanta team where is it Gozens, I think, is the guy. He's just like, you know, he's, he would be a fancy football legend if he was, you know, playing in the Premier League. You know, one billion goals and one billion assists a season, for example. But how he plays that role versus, let's say, how Reese James does versus how uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi plays it when he's there. These sort of nuances, I think, are very big. And I think, as you say, the point about systems and style and context is very important because I think that is one thing maybe that the data side of thing hasn't necessarily captured at the moment is that because somebody is a DM in a database doesn't mean that they play it. I mean, Jorginho is a defensive builder, as is Fernandinho, for all intents and purposes. They are the complete polar opposite in terms of what they do, what they're good at, how they're used, how they help the team, how they build up. All of those things are about as, as far from one another as possible. So that is incredibly important. And I think the other thing as well, and you know, I, I get a little bit of uh, a banter from people for this, but the, the physical profile of the player as well, that's something which I think people often underestimate when it comes to the Premier League. And I always remember there's a really fantastic Robert Perez quote. Um, I think he was on the radio talking about his time at Arsenal versus going to, to Villarreal. And he was saying, you know, at Villarreal, he could, he could get the ball, he could put his foot on it, he could have time, he could look up, you know, he could, he could dribble a bit. You know, he could, he could have ages to find a pass. And, you know, he had like good five, 10 seconds on the ball. But he was saying in the Premier League, he literally, like the first couple of games, he was taking a touch and somebody was just running through the back of him and trying to launch him 10 foot into the air. You know, those sort of nuances, you have to be, I think, physically proficient enough to play in the Premier League. And I think people often take that as some sort of quote-unquote Yadar kind of opinion or whatever it might be. Um, but it's it's uh, something that you have to take into account. You know, for example, you know, Virgil van Dijk is an incredibly gifted, technically proficient, superbly intelligent player, but he's also six foot five and he's an absolute unit and he's fast as any, you know, he's fast as any forward in the league. That is a big reason for why he is so successful in Premier League football. Um, so the, the physical, the system side of thing, and as you say, I think the, the style of, of the player itself, I think those are things, again, which they're difficult to capture. I've, I've seen people try and create profiles using data. And again, you know, if you, you, you know I, I have some myself where I combine different data sets and have them sort of fall into a, a kind of Venn diagram of different sort of midfield um, kind of profiles and things like that. But I, I would only ever really, I'd say, cling to that sort of opinion after then looking at video. So I think from your, from your question there, if you have ways of grouping players, which I do for midfielders, certainly in terms of what kind of profiles I think they would fit, um, that that would be a way that I would then look into possibly possibly scouting them in that way. So for me, it's very it's very interlinked in terms of how I use data with scouting. If I find a player that I really like on one or two viewings, and I go and check his stats out, for example, um, and the, the things that I consider to be important are terrible, then I need to know. Okay, maybe maybe he's literally just had the two best games of his career in a row. Um, and, you know, so there is there is ways of, I think, proving and disproving opinions as well. So I use them to validate. I use them to inform on young players. I use them to maybe group players into different kind of traits and, and roles and, and responsibilities. Um, but it, it's that uh, cocktail of, of the, the video analysis, the in-game analysis or in-person analysis, not so much during COVID times. But that that view of the player, I think, for me, is is supported by the data uh, when I come to like, if, if I'm going to write a conclusion, somebody will write a report. That is the sort of steps that I would take there. So it can be a little bit chicken, egg, chicken, egg, chicken, egg, and then get to the omelet. Um, but that sort of that kind of back and forth between it is is the way that I try to to use it. it. It's all about trying to fact check and and balance your own opinions and how you see things. I think data is great at, at being able to validate and also to disprove and to maybe strengthen or weaken opinions that you have on certain things as well. Um, but again, that would come with the, the understanding, as you say, that, you know, assist is a measure of creativity and having a bit better understanding of the data and the, the, the definitions of those data and how you would use them to, to inform on players. No, I think, you know, quite honestly, it's one of the most contextual conversations that we have had uh, about statistics in, in an all-encompassing way for, you know, this kind of football <laughs> analysis. So it, it, I think, you know, you highlight a lot of really good points, you know, the role of a player is important, the context of the system. And then, like you said, that's something that, Honestly, until now, it really goes unnoticed, right? You talk about like, you know, Van Dyke being such a physically commanding player and he has very good statistics, but in the data sheet, you're going to see numbers and you're not going to like, you're not going to get that profile player without watching. You're like, oh, this guy's just one of the biggest, fastest, strongest players in the field. And it's just an absolute 
you know, commanding uh, center back back there because of his physical, you know, kind of uh, imposing onto the opponent yeah. that he always has, right? So uh, put, it's put just... him in like a five foot five body. Put him in Billy Gilmore's body, and it's it's not <laughs> it's not the same. You know, he could again most intelligent center back, great defender, knows what he's doing. But if you're putting him in Billy Gilmore's body, it's it's not quite the same. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if he would, would he still be as good if he was like a Carlos Puyo, like kind of size center back? I think yeah. that's a, a, a tough thing that would never question, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, I know there's always kind of that uh, size argument, you know, height for center backs and it doesn't have, you don't have to be tall, but in this case, it really does help quite a bit. And that's something that you're not going to see on just putting numbers in a spreadsheet and making graphs or charts, whatever it might be. But, you know, so I have to say before we wrap up here, Joe, thanks again for coming on absolute blast discussing with this everything with you um especially this data side for me i think this is one of the best conversations i've had about it uh in kind of an all-encompassing argument so uh thanks so much for coming on really love uh hearing you share all your knowledge and again for anybody out there find find joe in the king's road podcast to see him as well on the byline and london uh is blue podcast as well and give him a follow at joe tweedy um again thanks so much joe no i really appreciate it guys it's been fun all right. Thanks again. And until next time, everybody, keep the blue flag flying high and uh, hopefully we can get you back on for a mid-season assessment episode. Yeah, I'd like that. <laughs>